About uh, five feet from where I'm sitting, there are two old binders filled with baseball cards from the 1970s and 80s. They're only the ones I knew would make me rich. So we're talking selective company here. Cameron Drew tops rookies and Mike Greenwell flares, Adonis Eric Hansen, a score Bob Tewksbury. And truly, they were the savings plan for a teenage me, the inevitable escape hatch. One day, I knew I'd cast those chips in, count my millions, and sail off in my yacht. Well, here I sit, yachtless. But two or three times a year, I comb through the pages and I'm zapped back in time to my boyhood kitchen table, sitting alongside John Ballerini and Scott Choi, swapping a Kent to Colby for a Jerry Mumphrey, offering three Tim Raineses and a Tom Baylor for a Mike Schmidt and a Wayne Tollison, and feeling, for a second, 13 again. And at that moment, looking over the dusty pages, I realized that the cards did, in fact, result in tremendous wealth. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Dave Hannigan, the Irish Times sports columnist and author of one of my favorite books of 2022, Muhammad Ali, 15 Rounds in the Wilderness. This is episode number 287. Let's sing some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Dave, you're the weirdest sports writer in the world, maybe, right? As far as, and here's what I mean. When Now, I know you don't just write sports. You have 10 books, 10, 10 nonfiction books, uh, two children's books. You don't just write sports. But for the purpose of this podcast and why I consider you weird, a couple of years ago, you wrote a book, Drama in the Bahamas, and it's a Muhammad Ali book. And you think, oh, Muhammad Ali book. I love a Muhammad Ali book. That's great. A Muhammad Ali. I, is it going to be about his fights with Frazier? Maybe it's going to be about George Foreman. Maybe it's about late life dementia, Parkinson's. What? No, you decide you're going to devote an entire book to his final ever fight, a fight almost no one saw against Trevor Burbick. And the book was amazing. And then I'm giving you a long intro here. You come back with a follow-up book, another Ali book called 15 Rounds in the Wilderness with an amazing cover. And I'm like, all right, well, what is this going to be about? What is this going to be? And it's basically a tracking, almost like a chronological tracking of the final years of his life. Uh, and a very good friend of mine is Jonathan Igg, who wrote this definitive uh, Muhammad Ali biography. And I'm like, both times, I'm like, do you know about this book? And he's like, no, how is it? Because there have been a lot of crappy Ali books. And I'm like, it's fucking great. Like, this guy is great. But you pick the weirdest Ali-related topics of all time. And I guess I'll just throw it out and ask why. I, I think because there's so many books written about Ali and they are everything's been said before, really. And that's the first thing. When you, when you touch upon Ali, you have to find something different. And, you know, when I, uh, 20 years ago, I wrote a book about Ali uh, fighting in Dublin uh, in 1972, and that was kind of a cultural mishmash. Ali arrives in Dublin, and it was only one week, but it was a dramatic, crazy week in Irish history, and he lit the place up. Um, so I, I, that, I really enjoy that. I'd always been looking for another Ali idea. And then the drama in the Bahamas, I was reading a book called Four Kings by George Kimball, one of the oh, yeah. great boxing books, and 
I came across references to drama in the Bahamas or to the drama in the Bahamas, the fight, not the book. And I came across then Hugh McElvenny, the great British sports writer, his piece about Ali and Burbick. And then, I, you know, you just Google around, you find people and you go, this is interesting. This is a weird story. Why was he here? How did he get there? There's all sorts of ne'er-do-wells lurking in the background. And then suddenly you think, you know, this is a story. But the driving force is you got to try and find an alley story that hasn't been told before. And, you know, um, even the current book, The 15 Rounds in the Wilderness, I had that idea for a while to write about that period in his life, but I had to wait for Jonathan Ige's book to come out to see whether he went into it in great detail, which he didn't. I mean, his book is magisterial. It's an incredible biography of Ali, and he couldn't obviously fit everything in there that he wanted to fit in. So I, was, I felt that there was a gap then to cover the years. His last years in public life really is how I would describe it. All right, so I want to, before you get to the new book, I really do want to talk, because I'm so fascinated by this, Drama in the Bahamas, again, 1981, December 11th, Muhammad Ali fights Trevor Burbick uh, in Nassau. And because everyone thinks his, I think most people think his last fight was probably against Larry Holmes when he got his ass kicked and Holmes is crying in the ring and, and it's horrible. But he has this one last fight and you decide, I'm going to write a book about this. This is what I want to write a book about. Uh, like when I pick books, I'm always thinking subject, subject, subject. And can this sell? And maybe that makes me a whore, but can this sell? And when you're pitching a book and you're telling people, I want to write a book about Ali, Trevor Burbick, how hard of a sell is that? And how do you even get a book deal for that kind of topic? It's a hard sell. And especially when I don't have a great reputation for selling books, uh, I'm not very commercially successful. But again, you know, like anybody who writes a book, if you're passionate about the project, if you think it's a good idea, and, and here's the thing. Do you want to spend all your time researching stuff that you're interested in? So I love the idea of spending a year. I think I spent a year on that reading all of these great writers writing about Ali because there were still great writers hanging around the scene at that time. So for me, it's a fantastic way to, you know, researching it is fun. You wander down the rabbit hole of Ali's life, you know, just to give you one incident in the research for that book, he, he talks a man down who's trying to commit suicide in, in downtown Los Angeles, uh, just as an aside, just as a kind of a regular alley, you know, weird alley occurrence. So there's so much stuff in it that I, and, you know, in that fight, the one detail that sells the book to me is like the, the cowbell that they needed to get a bell off a cow. And that had been in books before, long before my book. But that to me was like, how does the, you know, the greatest fighter of the age how is this the end? How is this? How does it end like this? And then when you get into it, I mean, it's a tawdry tale. There's a real, you know, dastardly character as the main promoter. The whole thing is just, and then Ali in the center of it, trying to defy father time and, and talking, trying to talk himself up when it's really, it's gone. You know, the, the glory days are gone. So I'm, when I was a full-time sports writer, you know, back in the day, I loved, I loved guys who were, you know, falling down the, the, into the foothills of the sport that they once bestrode. I love that kind of story. And I loved also guys battling for the time, trying to stay relevant for one more season and failing. Cause I always think those stories are better than the successful stories. Well, you know, what's so interesting about that. I've had a talk with a friend of mine recently. We had an idea for a screenplay and you can't do it because Cuba Gooding Jr. is just a mess and he's been, you know, molesting women and blah, blah, blah. But I always thought there's a great story to tell about Rod Tidwell from Jerry Maguire 30 years later. And 
He's sitting in his basement doing cameo videos. Hey, show me the money, Becky. Happy birthday. And they're not letting him into the Cardinals games because they don't recognize him and all these things, right? That the, the athlete after the athlete or the athlete toward the end. What is it about for you? What is it about that subject matter specifically that really does it for you? I just think there's something more authentic about that experience. Like I, even when I covered, I covered professional soccer in England in the 1990s. And, you know, we had some very successful Irish players there and that was my job to cover them. I was never that interested in sitting down with them because when you sat down with them, they were quite boring. They were quite dull. You know, they were tremendous athletes, tremendous footballers, as we'd call it, but they were not that interesting as people. Whereas I felt people in the lower leagues, you know, the minors, as you'd call it here in baseball, they had tremendous stories. Some of them, had, you know, some of them had come up the hard way. They were, they were trying to keep the dream alive. To me, that's a much more compelling tale than the tale of the guy who at 18 just makes it and then makes it for the next 10 or 12 years, gets rich and, you know, has this wonderful life. I think that the other side of the coin is is just to me, because I'm strange, I guess, is is more compelling. Does it make you sad? No, because I think there's a great honesty and there's a great nobility. I, I remember talking to a professional soccer player one time who would spend his summers driving his father-in-law's bread van, which meant he had to go out early in the morning and deliver bread. And he would do that for two weeks when he was home in Ireland from a career as a professional soccer, as a professional soccer player. And he loved that. And he would describe it to me. And he said he loved the alternative, you know, this alternative lifestyle that he led. And I just think those, there's not, sad about it. There's a nobility about these people. It's much harder to keep the career going when you're not getting rich and you're not getting famous. Um, you know, even I, I listened to your podcast with Ron Shelton. I mean, this is this is why that movie is so enduring and why we are still so fascinated about Paul Durham and that character is because that's what it's about. It's the guy who, whatever he spent, you know, 21 days in the, in the majors one time and glimpsed what it could be like, but never got back there. You have us. You said you had about a year to do this drama in the Bahamas. And mm. obviously a lot was written about the fight at the time. It was a heavily covered fight for what it was mm. um, with one year. And I assume you're not getting rich off your book deal for drama in the Bahamas. I'm not trying to be mm. snot. I mean, you're certainly not getting rich. Absolutely for not. Absolutely not. You're How motivated are you to try to find new sources, to call everyone, to go through the old articles, circle names and call them as opposed to making more research based where you're finding old documentation? I think I think with that book, I I went more research based. I did try. I was lucky. There was some some of the writers uh, who were on the fringes there. Michael Farber, who I think you probably know, mm -hmm. he was there. He I think he was working for the Montreal Gazette or one of the Canadian papers at the time. And I, I called him up and he was tremendous. Uh, I, I spoke to somebody who was in the band who were supposed to play in the ring at one point that night and then didn't get to play in the ring. Um, so, yeah, I, I uncovered a few people, but I, I also, it was much more work of research, much more uh, finding, you know, more and more articles, more and more obscure um, pieces of writing. This is the thing about Ali. You find people will write, if, if people, somebody writes a memoir and they've had a meeting with Ali or an encounter with Ali, they'll write about that. And I'm a bit of a magpie then. Obviously, I'm, I'm cherry picking this stuff from here, there and everywhere to, to try and flesh out the story. Don't you also think there's something like if you work in this business, I think you understand this. Like you're reading old articles, you're going through hundreds and hundreds of old articles about Muhammad Ali. 
And somewhere in passing, some article will mention that he had six slices of pizza and three Diet Cokes. And you're like, holy shit, that's amazing. As opposed to you spent two hours in the gym hitting the heavy bag. Absolutely. And that's the, the, the greatness of that is, is other people don't understand that you could be sitting at your computer for, you know, we're all on newspapers.com now, that archive. And you're, you could be trawling through, through stuff for two hours and you just find nothing, the same old, same old. And then you find one one left field columnist who just took a different tack and gives you so and you're like you found gold like you've unearthed gold and and you know that when you write that on the page people will say how did he know that that's an incredible detail where did he get that information from i just want to say that i've been working on a new book project and i've been going through a, a an old high school yearbook and i've been finding every name and i've been texting every person and the other day it was like rejection, 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 wrong number, wrong number, rejection, like nonstop, nonstop. And then I found one person, maybe out of 60 texts to people, one. And I was like, it's all worth it. You know, yeah. it's just all worth it. It becomes yeah. all worth it for the dig becomes worth it as maddening as it can make you. Absolutely. And you, and then that keeps you going. And the funny thing is, you know, normal people, as I'd say, don't understand, (laughs) don't understand the joy you get from that one, the one win amidst all the losses, because you know, you've opened the door and you're going to find something more now behind that door. Once you step through it, this may be a dumb question. And I hope it isn't an offensive question because I don't mean it that way. Like you, you mentioned like your sales, you said not amazing. Do you view it when you're working on a book? Do you view it as like, this is going to be the one that cracks through. This is going to be the one that has a chance to sell a million, to be Seabiscuit. Or do you not even think that way? I don't really think that way. I, For me, with a book, it's, do I want to write this book? Is this a subject I'm interested in? I hope, I think deep down, you hope every book will sell. Um, you know, and I, I, I've had, you know, the, I wrote a book a few years ago about an Irish writer called Brendan Bean, who came to New York and lit up Broadway and drank himself to death. Uh, another cherry story, yeah. and uh, yeah, but that that book was actually optioned uh, by a Holly by a, a he's not Hollywood, he's, he's an Irish uh, producer who's been uh, nominated for Oscars and stuff, um, and that you know obviously that would be a bit of a bonanza, but that you know you don't I don't lie awake at night waiting for it to happen. It was fun. I was ha- glad it happened. Maybe someday it gets made. Who knows? You know that business yeah. uh, a little bit better than mine, but I'm not. No, I'm not driven by by the thought of the sales. I just want I want to tell a story that I want to tell because, as you know, if you're going to devote so many hours of your life to this, you've got to like it and you've got to be into it and you've got to be motivated to do that for your own reasons. And I don't think money in itself will be a good enough reason to justify doing it. So what is the moment for you? Like, what, what's the payoff moment for you? The payoff, actually, I mean, the, when you get the book, you're thrilled, you know, you're thrilled to get the book. Uh my payoff moment is when I get my my younger kids in a bookstore and force them to pose with a picture of the book. Uh, I was in Ireland. Uh, I was in Ireland during the summer, and the Fifteen Rounds in the Wilderness book was in the bookstore. And the two of them, I, I made the two of them pose, and uh, the eleven year old and the fifteen year old. And you know, the fifteen year old was mortified, just so embarrassed that he's being made to do this in a largely empty bookstore. Uh, that's one of the payoffs that's one of the payoffs I, I always enjoy that moment and also I, I think you know when, when when you get emails when you get emails from people uh or, in, or on twitter people reach out to you and they say nice things about it and they say this is I, I read this and this made me think of whatever and thank you for that you know that kind of stuff 
yeah, there's there's a payoff there as well. You know, I mean, as you said, there's no commercial payoff for me, but there is the payoff, the feedback, uh, and the critics, you know, the positive review kind of from people. Uh, that that means something. You need to work on your game a little bit because I just wanted you to know both of my kids instinctively move my books from the sports section to the front of the store in the new bestseller section. So if you really want you, if you want to really properly train your kids, you need to get that going. Those are commercially savvy kids. (laughs) They know where their bread is buttered. Yeah, exactly. All right. So wait, so I get this book 15 rounds in the wilderness, Muhammad Ali, and I read it and I'm like, this is freaking ridiculously good. And the approach to it is riveting, which is basically you take everything he did over this long period after fighting and basically kind of have it in a chronological offering. It's not you trying to be the world's greatest writer. It's not you trying to reinvent, but in a way it's very inventive. Why did you pick this sort of structure, which is here's what he did at this time. Then he did this, then he did this, then he did this. And these little blocks of time. I stole the idea from, uh, there's a book, there's a book called, uh, there's a, a British writer called Craig Brown wrote a wrote a book called 150 Glimpses of the Beatles. I'm not even that interested in the Beatles. I think it was the second book I'd ever read on the Beatles, but it was episodic. It was little chunks of story, some long, some short, and all, and, and you know, he used that to, tell, to produce a biography of the Beatles. And I thought it was a very compelling, easy way, easy to read, almost way of, of writing a biography. And I'd been knocking around the idea of writing about Ali's post-boxing life for a couple of years and I'd struggled to find a format for it. And then I read Craig Brown's book and I decided that was it because I started with the end, the Burbick fight in December 91, 1981 and I end with lighting the Olympic flame in Atlanta. So it was 15 years, 15 rounds with the boxing fights in Ali's era. So I think I thought, and then, you know, there's all these incidents that are hard to tie together, but if you present them individually, they, I think they work, you know, like this one, one cameo where he's doing something in a store, the next minute he's in a grade school doing magic for kids. The next minute he's at a Valentino fashion show in New York, or he's sitting with Trump ringside at a, at a boxing fight, you know, all these different stories that hopefully offer you a portrait of that 15 year period in his life. I was going to say, all right, so round six, 1987, this is where you wrote at the beginning. You wrote on 17 January, Arthur Marson announced that Muhammad Ali, celebrating his 45th birthday, was considering locating a distribution center for champion shoe polish in Benton Harbor, near his home in Berrien Springs, Michigan. With a population of 14,800 and an unemployment rate close to 9%, the economically depressed town was badly in need of such a boost. I want to do something for the people there, said Ali, although nobody was quite sure that quote came from him. There were growing suspicions about Morrison forging Ali's signature on documents and pretending to be him in phone interviews with journalists. So randomly, why do you pick something that small and in a way that's seemingly insignificant to be significant enough, not only to uh, appear in your book to to start a chapter? Because Morrison, there's like four bad guys in this book who are exploiting Ali or taking advantage of Ali to different degrees. Uh, There's a lawyer called Richard Hirschfeld. There's a a fake sheikh called Sheikh Mohammed El-Fassi. There's a dodgy doctor called Rachko Medinicha. And then there's Arthur Morrison, who's kind of a street hustler, uh, who is who is making money off Ali's name and kind of embarrassing Ali and kind of dragging Ali's name through the dirt in, in business circles and stuff like that. So that little, that's a little teaser 
because Morrison's going to get worse. And that story, you know, you'll forget about that. But then a couple of pages later, Morrison comes up again. Uh, he's faking being Ali in interviews with people. He's actually on a payphone in a restaurant in New York City claiming to be Ali. And, you know, he's a he's a very interesting character. He's a terrible character in many ways and he exploits Ali. So just you just take that little snippet which is not a which is which sounds positive, and then you get to the end, and you go, "Oh, that's not that. That's not really that positive." And hopefully, people will remember that when Morrison's name, because in this format, you know, there are recurring characters, and over time, you see, "Oh, that guy's really bad." <laughs> this is the same guy that was doing that in the last chapter, and bit by bit, you you build a profile of those people alongside Ali. Do you walk away from writing these books uh, on Ali um, more impressed with him or less? Like, does the disinfectant of light make it a little less impressive? No, I, I become more impressed because this book, he ends up in the most bizarre places. And what makes it, you know, people say, why do you keep writing about Ali? And I think I'm done now, actually. But uh, why do you keep writing about Ali? Because look at look at where he ends up in, in, the, in, in this book. And imagine any superstar athlete today doing this kind of stuff. Like Ali arrives in Dayton, Ohio, He's going, he's there to do an autograph show that weekend. The guy picking him up happens to be involved in the show, but also the vice principal of a school. And then he says, oh, what are you doing? Because I'm a vice principal of a school. Take me to the school. And he goes to the school and causes havoc in the school. And he loved that. He loved the adulation. He loved the oxygen of, 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 of the crowd and the publicity. But my point is like, I, I can't see Tiger Woods doing that. I can't see LeBron, who I love. I can't see him doing that. You know, I can't see any modern athlete ending up in this strange and wonder. Like, I can't see any athlete today of this stature who would say to a member of the public, oh, come up to my room and let's watch the NCAA finals together. You know, when would that when would that happen or who? And this is why Ali is so different. And this is why when I'm finished writing about it, in this case, I'm like, yeah, he had his flaws. He contradicted himself throughout his, his life. You know, said one thing, did another, said one thing, did another. But then... You know, overall, this complex character is so extraordinary in terms of where he put himself. And even at the end, he climbs up the uh, he climbs up the the dish at the uh, Atlanta Games to light the flame in a terrible, physically reduced, diminished condition. You know, what great athlete would put them out, uh, put themselves out there on the world stage for everybody to see in this kind of powerless condition? And there's bravery and courage in that that I think matches anything that he did in the ring. I just want to say I interviewed Muhammad Ali one time and it was um, I was at Sports Illustrated. I was a young writer there. Muhammad Ali was coming to New York City to promote the center they wound up building in in uh, Louisville. And my editor said, do you want to go? Do you want to go have lunch with Muhammad Ali? And I'm like, fuck, yeah, I do. And I go to it was in an office and it was me, the sports writer, Dick Schapp, um, Muhammad Ali's wife, and some PR guy and we're sitting at a table and the PR guy's at the head and he's talking and I'm sitting between Muhammad Ali and Dick Schaap. I'm like 26 years old. Right. And um, the guy goes, blah, 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 blah. Right. Champ champ. Right. And Muhammad Ali is sleeping and he wakes up and he goes, there's a black guy, a Dominican guy and a Mexican guy in a car. Who's driving. And the guy at the head of the table says, who's driving champ. And he goes, the police. And then he just falls right back asleep. And <laughs> I know this is part of his act, you know, like he probably wasn't never was sleeping, blah, blah, blah. But I 
freaking love that I had. I feel like everyone wanted a moment with Muhammad Ali. Is that overly simplistic? Everyone just wanted a moment with the guy? No, it's absolutely not. And that's that's the, the other point of this book is there are all of these cameos where people just had that one interaction that they've forgotten so much other things in their lives, but they remember. And, and in Ali's case, it might have been at a bookstore. It might have been at an airport. He used to fly commercial. And he would walk through airports and the number of people who had memories of kind of touching him in an airport and, and coming upon him. No, you're exactly you're like everybody else. I mean, and you're you know, you're too young to, to appreciate Ali in his prime, you know, early 70s Ali you know, or 60s Ali kind of tearing it up for the first time. You don't remember that stuff. You, that right. predates you. But you still, you know, you saw and witnessed up close the charisma, this certain je ne sais quoi that this guy had that nobody can quite quantify, but you just knew it was special and it was different. I actually had a discussion the other day with my kid about um, Shaquille O'Neal. And I feel like Shaq in a way is the closest thing we have to Muhammad Ali in the way he wears his fame. And he wears it like a big blanket and he wants you to come in and kind of enjoy it. And there was a moment when Kobe Bryant died, when Shaq was at what was in the Staples Center and he comes out and fans are everywhere and he just starts chanting Kobe. Kobe and all the fans are surrounding him and no one's trying to take his watch. No one's trying to beat him up. No one's trying to even pose for a selfie. And I feel like celebrities like Ali and Shaq understood something about the power of celebrity, positive power of celebrity that maybe guys like Michael Jackson or Michael Jordan or Kobe don't get. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I'll give you an example, right? Did you ever see the Shaq video where he comes in the police cars and the kids are shooting hoops yeah. on the street and he gets involved and you're like, this is fantastic. Yep. You know, this is, this is a guy, as you say, he's enjoying it. He's reveling in it. And there, there's a story in the book of Ali uh, in South Bend, Indiana. He comes upon a group, group of kids just standing on a street corner and he gets out and starts shadow boxing with them. And somebody calls the police. They think there's a kind of fracas on the street. And then the cops come and then they say to Ali, oh, would you come to the, we'd like to bring you to the station and fake arrest you to shock everybody at the station. So then he goes like for a second gag that night. And, you know, Shaq is that. There's like an impishness about these people where they see, I can just walk into a room and cause absolute havoc. And I love that. And I can enjoy that as a celebrity. So Shaq is, is a very, very much, you know, and Shaq lights up a room. I mean, it's apart from the fact he takes up the room with because of his size, he lights up a room with his personality. Yeah, I remember reading years ago, Michael Jackson went to a mall and he had like 13 bodyguards surrounding him everywhere he went. And it's like you easily could go to the mall with one bodyguard, no bodyguards, joke with people about Billie Jean, sign a bunch of autographs, buy a kid his lunch and you're a million times better off. Your life is greatly, greatly improved by that. Like when, when I think of... Um, there Ali, Ali books into a hotel in New Jersey. And in the book, there's a friend of my journalist, one of my best journalist friends from my entire career uh, from Dublin. He happened to be in New Jersey covering a boxing fight. Ali comes in. He's jet lagged. He's waiting in the hotel lobby. Ali turns up and the, the bellboy says, you want to bring his bags up to his room? So my friend gets to go on the elevator with Ali and bring his bags up to his room. And you're like, yeah, he has this interaction where obviously you know, that's a story for the rest of your life. Whereas, you know, somebody like Michael Jackson and even Jordan and people like that, there was body, there's a cordon sanitaire keeping people away from them at all times. Yeah, I actually, I want to say you make a very important point and you've made it twice now. So I want to emphasize it. Um, 
I feel like the power of many of the books I've written and the power of books you've written, certainly the Ali books, is someone will talk to me today and they'll forget it five seconds later. But you have that one interaction with a Brett Favre or Muhammad Ali or Shaq or whoever, you're gonna, it could be the fifth round draft pick out of Tulsa who lasted in camp for a week. He's always going to remember his time with Brett Favre. And these people are always going to remember their time with Muhammad Ali. It's a real power as a researcher, don't you think? Absolutely. And, you're, you know, I, I, I remember talking to a friend of mine who was writing a book about a, a team. And I said, you know, just look at the bench. Just go to the bench. Find the guys that were on the bench who didn't even play a minute and interview those people. The people on the bench, you know, who, who like this was the, maybe the high point of their careers, even though they didn't play it. Those people, to me, are often, you know, your best eyewitnesses and your best kind of resource in terms of in terms of telling these stories. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my mother-in-law, Laura, who's graciously hosting Thanksgiving this year. Did you carve the turkey? Laura, I'm recording my podcast. I'm having 17 people here in a matter of hours get off the worldwide internet and carve the turkey. Laura, just give me a minute. You kids with your hip-hop and television. When I was a girl, we spent Thanksgiving together as a family, getting drunk and laughing at my Aunt Doris's hairy cheek mole. I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm just trying to remind my listeners that this podcast is sponsored by Royal Retros, home with the best throwback jerseys, hats, and T-shirts around. I'll carve the turkey in a minute. I never liked you anyway. You have a weird background, and I don't even know your background that well, but you're... You've been a professor at Suffolk Community College in New York since 2004. You're uh, your columnist, the Irish Times, the Evening Echo, the Irish Echo. Um, I've never asked you this. What uh, what the fuck are you doing here? I'm married an American. <laughs> I'm married. I'm married I moved to America uh, 22 years ago. I moved here um, and I've written about sport in America for various Irish and English publications for 20 for, for the 22 years. I've been with the Irish Times the last nine years. Um, and I, I teach at the community college. I was an adjunct there for years and I've been full time for the last seven years. So that's why I mix in history books uh, with with the sports books, because uh, I teach history there. And I know you I know you teach as well. And I love it. I love the teaching. I love, uh, you know, meeting 80, 19 year olds every semester who kind of reshape your worldview and force you to rethink how you approach things. I think it's refreshing and it, it keeps you young, I guess. Yeah. Does it keep you young? Wait, I, I swear to God, this is a conversation I have every single year. I'm 50 years old this year. The students never age. So they're always 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And I keep getting older. And when I started teaching 20 years ago, every now and then someone in Manhattanville College who works there would be like, oh, do you have your student ID? And I'm like, haha, no, I'm a teacher. Now I'm more likely to ask for my AARP card than I am. My, uh, I don't know how it makes me feel. It makes me feel young in terms of it. it they, they teach me ref, cultural reference references that I wouldn't know otherwise. Right. They drop in references. Uh, they make me realize that stuff that I know they may not necessarily know. And that's fine. Uh, my musical references now, for instance, would be not just their parents, maybe their grandparents. Right. If I mention a band, I'm like, maybe the grandparents do that, not the, just the parents. I just like the energy that comes off them. I think, you know, I've just started uh, first full week of classes just ended yesterday and there's a new batch of students. And I really, I don't know, there's something kind of innocent about them when they come in first and they're they're eager to learn and you 
you know, you're, you feel a responsibility and then you're going to build this rapport with them over 15 weeks and then and they'll be gone. <laughs> they'll move on to somebody else. But I know I, I enjoy it. I enjoy it. And I think, you know, it's funny because they ask me, you know, they ask me questions about writing and they ask me questions about books. Um, one student came up to me with a book that I wrote, the history book I wrote a couple of years ago, Barbara University, and said, uh, this is the best book I've ever read. And I said, well, thank you. That's that's very nice of you to say. And then he said, it's the only book I've ever read. Damn you, kid. <laughs> that's awesome. Do you... Um. I, I mean, I get asked this a, a lot and I feel like you're much busier than I am. Like you teach, you're a columnist, you write an endless string of books. How does the busyness of teaching and being a columnist impact your ability to write books and the time you need to write books? It impacts it greatly. <laughs> it impacts it greatly. But, um, you know, I don't golf. I don't do that. Yeah. You know, I, I this is kind of my spare time activity. Um, I guess being a being a history teacher as well, you know, you do spend a lot of time researching. So that kind of lends itself to this kind of work. Uh, we do have uh, summers in which to do, you know, in pursue our own projects and stuff like that. So, no, I mean, it's a job that's fairly conducive to writing books, but it, it is still a struggle. I mean, I always think every time I'm writing a book, I think this is the this is the book that I'm going to take a week and go to one of those writers retreats somewhere and actually really, you know, take time. And then I always abandon that at some point, yeah. at some point in the project, I think that's just not feasible. You just got to continue. You got, I write in the margins of my life, basically. Do you um, go through moments you know, when you, when you know that your book sucks, like you, this sucks. This is the worst one I've ever written. This is a nightmare. Absolutely. And, and also I hate reading books. Like I hated reading. I was flicking through 15 rounds in the wilderness. I hated reading that this morning. <laughs> I hated kind of reading back on that because, you know, you're reading it and you're like, well, that's not a very well put together piece. And you could have done better. Why did I pick that? Why did I even put that incident in there? And, you know, you're second guessing it, second guessing it all the time. I, I think that's, you know, part of it. Do you go through this? This is the fascinating one for me. Okay. So Jonathan, I wrote this Ali book. It's an insanely good book. Like it's ridiculous. Right. And I have book envy just reading that book because it's so good. You love writing about Ali. You're writing about Ali. Do you read that book with joy or do you read that book with like, God damn it. No, I read that book. I have no envy of that book because that is just, I would regard that as a, at a higher level than my book. Okay, I, um, any of my Ali books. In the same way that I would look at the Thomas Hauser book, the original Ali, you know, oral biography from the early nineties. I, I would regard those as kind of the north stars of this. Of this, you know, uh, that you, if you're writing about Ali, those are the two books. Everything else is is below that. Even the great stuff that came in the seventies and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I regard those two books as if you're working on, uh, they're almost your library, you know, they're your first reference point. You have to look at those two books, Hauser and I can just say, I am working, you know, towards contributing to the canon about Ali, but not on the same level as those two books. Yeah. Wait, so you, um, you write column again, weekly column for the Irish Times. I have one in front of me from July 29th. Illustrious bloodlines that show hype surrounding prodigy Arch Manning's choice. Uh, this is about Arch Manning, Cooper Manning's son, and our Peyton and Eli's nephew. And you wrote, How Sports News is Made Now. An 18-year-old whose profile reads, high school student, logs onto social media and, point, and posts his first ever tweet announcing, committed to University of Texas, hashtag hook em. And in the southern portion of the United States, the reason where college football remains a quasi-religious affair 
a frenzy is unleashed. Story of the week, maybe the year, because a kid's name is Arch Manning, grandson of a storied New Orleans Saints quarterback called Archie, nephew of a pair of Super Bowl winners named Eli and Peyton. Those illustrious bloodlines ensure that speculation about where exactly this prodigy might go to play college ball has been going on since early adolescence. Ludicrous, but this is the world we have created. I'm not being snide. It's a great column. Do readers of the Irish Times give a shit? Yes. And that's the bizarre thing that has changed in the 22 years, in the 22 years since I've been in America, because of technology and cable and satellite and everything. I have friends in Ireland who have more American sports channels in their houses than I do. Okay. They have access to it. Uh, If I'm on Twitter on a Sunday in the NFL season, for instance, uh, all of the Irish journalists I follow on, not all of them, but a lot of them will be up into the wee hours of the Monday morning watching NFL games. The NFL, the NBA, not baseball. And the NFL, college football to a lesser extent, and the NBA to a huge extent are enormous in Ireland now, in a way that they weren't 20 years ago. 20, you know, 25 years ago, they were not. But they're so available now. They are live. You, know, you can watch every game live in Ireland. So that has made... American sport much more relevant. And it's made it harder for me because I have to try to find angles that necessary, you know, that people aren't seeing when they tune in to watch an NFL broadcast or an NBA broadcast. Uh, and, you know, to answer your question about whether they give a crap, I would say, you know, when you write a call, I write a weekly column trying to explain the American sports landscape. Uh, if I write a column about Trump, if I work Trump in there in any way, then that's, uh, you know, a clickbait that's a viral that will go viral very very quickly like i wrote recently about trump and the live golfers and the 9-11 which i know is a hobby horse of yours yes. and i may have co- i may have quoted you and i definitely piggybacked your research on the whole you know the 9-11 and trump's mythologizing of his own role in that but that stuff goes you know that goes nuts in terms of driving readers and and clicking you know clicks on the website of the newspaper and stuff like that because I'm sure they love Donald Trump in Ireland. I'm sure he's a beloved and envied figure. Of course, he's loved everywhere. He's a beloved character. I mean, he's he is one of the world's great. He's one of the world's great iconic figures now that we all, you know, we all we, very few things unite unite us except our love for Donald. He's he's the best. Um, what I'm interested in this, you you've been here for more than two decades now, and you write, so you obviously you have a good look at the media landscape here. Um, when you look at America, the way sports are covered in America these days, uh, from the Stephen A. Smith, Skip Bayless approach to ESPN.com to the New York Times no longer covering local teams. I don't know, on and on and on. Are you like, oh, this is great. I love this. Or are you like, what the hell is going on here? No, I, I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm of your generation. So we're, we're old school now, which is, old. Very, which is old. very bizarre. It's very bizarre to think of yourself as old school, but I, I lament the olden days. You know, I lament the, the way things used to be. Um, I despise the whole hot take TV, you know, journalists, the, you know, tr- the, the goal now is not to become a columnist or to become a magazine writer. It's to get on TV and deliver increasingly hot takes, hotter takes that are designed to drive people nuts kind of thing. My 11-year-old loves that, loves that aspect of the sport. He's an NBA nut, and he loves that aspect of sports coverage as much as I despise it. So I think it's a generational thing. But I, I, came, I started coming to America in the mid-90s when and I heard you talking to Bill Colson about this on your on, on a recent podcast, when sports I used to buy Sports Illustrated and 
bring it back to Ireland. And then I used to get it sent to me in Ireland before I moved here. And that was the last great time of Sports Illustrated, you know, the late 90s. In, and then I moved here in 2000. Um, I lament that, that, you know, I, I used to love that. I used to love reading Sports Illustrated, um, you know, when it was really, there was nothing quite like it on the sports landscape. The quality of the writing, even about sports that I wasn't that interested in, I would read it and I could appreciate it. I lament that that's gone. You know, I lament the New York Times used to have columnists who I would have to read and look forward to reading. And that doesn't ex exist anymore. And this fragmentation uh, of the whole sports landscape, I, you know, I, I bristle against it, but it, it is what it is. I will say this, though. I mean, I know you're a Sports Illustrated alumnus and, and you speak very happily about your time there. Right. I, I taught Sports Illustrated when I moved here in the 2000s. I really felt they didn't cover themselves in glory in the way the magazine covered Lance Armstrong. Like he was being covered right. one way in Britain and Ireland and he was being covered differently by Sports Illustrated. Um, I had... Yeah, I used to love baseball when I moved there first. Absolutely love. Lots of Irish immigrants fall for baseball because we have a stick and ball game in Ireland called hurling, which I guess there's some sort of thing there where, where we fall for baseball. And I fell for baseball and then I fell out with baseball when I saw how they covered the steroids thing. And that was just, to me, it was just a very strange interlude in American sports journalism, the way people covered that. I uh, sorry. No, I, I thought I was thinking about the other day how um, this is going to sound unrelatable to people under a certain age, right? But there was something to be said for the wait and the look forward. Like Sports Illustrated's coming tomorrow. Oh my God, that's great. I can't wait to get my SI in the mailbox. Or even like, even like before we had phones and I used to look forward to coming home and checking my email. Oh, it's going to be in my email box today. You know, like, the wait for something, the anticipation, the buildup. And now there's no buildup for anything. It just happens immediately. The immediacy factor, I think, is a little bit damaging to sports media. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I remember the day, I'm sure it happened much earlier than this, but I remember in a college classroom saying to students one day, um, if you're getting on a train, if you're getting on the train, Penn Station, you're getting on the train to come out to Long Island, what magazine do you buy getting on the train. You're in that, there was that big magazine store in Penn Station. I'm like, what magazine are you buying to get on the train? Like, what are you interested in? And they looked at me like I was speaking French or something. They're like, what? What? Like the idea of going to buy a mag, like to me, you're getting on a train, you buy a magazine, <laughs> you know, Sports Illustrated, ESPN, the magazine, whatever you're in, you know, Rolling Stone, if you're into music, whatever. And I'm like, and they just look back at me puzzled. Why would you do that? Why would you buy a magazine? And that's when you realize, oh, print is dead. <laughs> this, is all, this is over. You know, this whole, you know, I used to get on planes and my bag would be full of newspapers that I'd saved up and magazines that I'd saved up for the plane ride. You know, it's a long plane journey back to Ireland. I'd have all the reading material in the bag. And now I got on a plane with nothing. nothing. I, got, I have my Kindle and I have my phone. Wait, I have, I have two things I can beat you with. Number one, so I teach sports writing, Chapman University, every Tuesday night. I love my students. This past week, uh, we covered uh, Mike Tyson, Peter McNeely fight. We, we just, we, I had them watch it and then write about it, right? I have 11 students. I think six never heard of Mike Tyson biting Evander Holyfield's ear. And I think the same number had never heard of Evander Holyfield <laughs> in a sports writing class. I, I was like, what? <laughs> what the? Oh, and then... I handed out, so I hadn't, I haven't taught in about three years. It was my return. And I handed out paper syllabuses 
And they all looked at me like I had seven heads. Yeah, it's, you know, you got to get with the program. You got to get with the, everything's on, everything's online. You, you, and the idea of printing off like three or four page syllabuses, you're, you're, you know, you're killing a tree every time you do that. Yeah. You got, I, I, I asked a class once, had they ever heard of Muhammad Ali? And I, I, I can't remember how many he had, but one guy said, isn't he the guy that bit the other guy's ear off? Oh. And I said, no, he's not. Quite. <laughs> that's not quite who that character is. You know, that's not that's not quite who he is. But yeah, all of these things. But as I said, like, how would they know? When did Mike Tyson stop fighting? You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess Tyson's a different one because he's a he's a pop cultural figure. That's why they you know. Because yeah, he had the cart. He had that cartoon show, which was really weird. Uh, on Cartoon Network where Mike Tyson, it was like the Scooby-Doo mysteries, but right. with Mike Tyson, which again, you know, is one of the weirder kind of turns in any career, in, 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 even in a, by American sports standards. Actually, in a weird way, I think Mike Tyson, in a weird way, is a lot closer to Ali and Shaq in that he has actually learned to own his celebrity a little bit. And he's become, I mean, I don't know how the fuck this happened, but he's become a very endearing American figure. It's one, you know, I, I hold that one up and it's odd because he was convicted of rape. You know, I don't know how anybody comes back from that, nope. except this man did. And and he, as you said, like, who would have thought he was convicted of rape and then he, one day he would be a cartoon show. That's crazy. He would be a cartoon character. I don't know. I don't know if I'm I'm happy with that. I, I think it's a street really, really, really odd, uh, odd, strange story, um, you know, but it, I guess that this is the sports landscape. Like this is what makes sport interesting because anything can happen in the, in the sports world, you know, anything it normal rules do not apply. And that's good. And that's bad as well in, in certain respects. It's good for us as writers though. It's absolutely. And that's, you know, um, I, I have this thing called my anthology of failed book proposals, <laughs> which is which is all of the great book, all the great book proposals that never made it. And I wanted to do one years ago, and I think somebody did it after though all all the or fifteen people who fought Tyson and their lives and like what happened to them after they fought Tyson and some of them you know some of them went on to to have normal lives, some of them had terrible lives uh but again, you know it's my recording habit of I'm looking for sadness and poignant stories of people suffering and struggling after being in the sports arena. First of all, I want to say that sounds like a great book idea. I would take that off. I really do. I think that sounds like. I think somebody did it. I know somebody did it for Ali. I think somebody did it for Tyson too afterwards. All right. But then, all right, to wrap this, I was going to give you what I think should be the fourth book in your Ali. I was going to say trilogy, the fourth book in your four book Ali series, which is Muhammad Ali, Leon Spinks, the fight, the loss, the return, the win. I just picture Leon Spinks on that SI cover with his teeth missing I'm all in for anything you, you want to write about Leon Spinks. You know, it really, I, I recently was researching the 1976 American boxing team, oh. you know, the, the Olympics team. Of course. Fascinating team, incredible characters, the Spinks brothers, Sugar Ray Leonard. They're re, there's a lot there. There's a lot. You shouldn't have said that out loud now, though, because other people are going to hear it. Somebody, oh, yeah, else, is going to, some, somebody else is going to jump on it. Uh, before that, I have another idea involving Irish wrestlers in America in the 1930s. So obviously that, as you can see, I'm really going for the commercial. I, hard just, with all these, I hear with all these ideas. Wait, do you I have an agent? Is, I do not have an agent. No, because I, I was just picturing I was just picturing your agent listening to this and his head literally exploding in his room. 
it would just be too depressing for an agent to handle my career. It would just be, they would dread my phone calls or my emails with the latest ridiculous book idea that will not sell. Yeah, your agent's going to call and he's going to be like, Dave, I was thinking, I really like that Tyson idea with the 15 fighters. You're like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I'm going to do 1930s Irish wrestlers instead. What do you think of that? Head <laughs> exploding all over the I mean, You know, it's like I, I said to you before we came, before we started recording, my boast now is I've written more books than I've sold. That's, awesome. that's going to be the strap line on my next book. Nothing wrong with that. Well, I just want to say sincerely, I love your books. Like, I love your books. I, I just do. And that, I mean, that Burbick book, and I'm not, I'm saying it only because it's specifically about a fight as opposed to the Ali book is one of the great boxing books I've ever read. I freaking love it. I love Thank everything you. about it. It does it, it, everything about that book. And this book is equally great. Like you're just a really great boxing writer and you nail it and you get it. And thanks to this podcast, the next five copies you sell, I want to commission. Thank you so much for having me on, Jeff. Really enjoyed it. Cheers. I want to thank today's guest, Dave Hannigan, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Davey Hannigan and order Muhammad Ali 15 Rounds in the Wilderness wherever books are sold. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me and remember, keep writing. <laughs>